0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... My sh- new short story collection, new Tales of the Yellow Sign, and the weird influence of Robert W. Chambers.
1: Adventure Gaming's quickly evolving relationship with Kickstarter. What to do when a game idea comes your way. And the difference between mystics and occultists. And now it's time for uh, Among My Many Hats, uh, because we have so many hats uh, that we must s- uh, sort among them. So let's sort over to one of Robin's hats. Robin, tell us about New Tales of the Yellow Sign.
0: New Tales of the Yellow Sign is my uh, upcoming collection of short stories based on the uh, mythos of Robert W. Chambers, who wrote the uh, famed Yellow Sign stories. Uh, it is coming out uh, as an electronic Edition that I will be self publishing, sticking my toe for the first time in the waters of uh, self published ebooks. A print edition will be available from uh, your pals and mine, can at Atoma- Atomic Overmind, uh, who are also famed for uh, their Tour de Lovecraft book by uh, one Kenneth Height.
1: And Cthulhu 101, also by Kenneth Height. Indeed. And uh, they're going to
0: have a uh, hardcover limited edition of 50 copies which depending on when this episode drops you either can soon get at gen con or just recently got at gen con
1: or missed a gen con and are beating yourself up about it right now and we're only rubbing salt in the wounds
0: well i try to stay positive about these things can uh and uh. in
1: september there will be the
0: uh unlimited uh softback edition and uh If something really crazy happened, there might be still a few hardcover uh, copies available via mail order. And uh, Ken, you were very kind uh, to write the foreword uh, to this collection of short stories and therefore know a little bit about it and uh, taught me a few things that I did not know about Robert W. Chambers. So maybe you could talk a bit about uh,
1: his uh, career first of all. Okay. Uh, Chambers was a guy who uh, hung out with... uh The beloved turn-of-the-century artist Charles Gibson. And he was going to be the artist and Gibson was going to be the writer. And they both moved to Paris to make that dream come true. And while he was in Paris, Chambers uh, hung out with bohemians and with artists and probably had a great time. And only a portion of that found its way into his first book, In the Quarter, which is basically annoying stories of his trip to Paris. (laughs) <laughs> uh, as far as I can tell. And then he took that same, uh, Gallic studio atmosphere, as Lovecraft put it, and poured it into another anthology of stories called The King in Yellow, uh, which was unified thematically by a sort of, uh, mauve decade, um, one hesitates to say despair, but certainly there's a, there's an element of, of that emotion throughout all the stories and the atmosphere of Overheated uh, emotion in general, uh, handled in many cases with an incredibly deft aplomb and in two or three cases with stark, teeth-rattling supernatural terror, those being the uh, story The Repair of Reputations and uh, uh, The Yellow Sign, uh, as well as, I would argue, um, a couple of the other short stories in that uh, initial uh, King in Yellow portion of The King in Yellow and also... Um, the Street of the First Shell in in the, the non King and Yellow portion of the King and Yellow, terrific stuff. And he, having pretty much written some of the finest uh, horror in the latter part of the 19th century in America, immediately stopped writing horror, started writing historical pot boilers and romances, and was a, a big bestseller. Uh, yeah, exactly. Of his day. Made it made a huge amount of money and retired happily to upstate New York, where he collected armor and butterflies and had a happy, productive life, which makes him outside the norm for horror writers.
0: Right. And he returned a bit later on to sort of pulpier, uh, crazy science fiction for a little while, but nothing has really touched the influence of these four stories. And it's really almost two stories and a couple of vignettes. And then even the rest of the collection is, uh, although it maintains the same atmosphere, and in fact, even some of the same characters reappear in what is basically a piece of straight fiction and uh, one of the supernatural stories. So he's had an incredible influence over
1: the weird tale
0: on the basis of this very slim uh, number of stories.
1: Yeah, partially because uh, they are terrific, and even uh, probably more so because H.P. Lovecraft read uh, Chambers and was bowled over and put... Uh, The Yellow Sign and Hastur uh, into The Whisper in Darkness, into that long litany of uh, crazy stuff that he borrowed off of other writers. uh, When uh, uh, Wilmarth is explaining what he has learned from Akeley, or rather from the Migo via Akeley. And that uh, is just catnip to mythos authors. And so they went in and they dug around and they found the Chambers stuff and kept uh, Chambers' short stories the king in yellow in prince which means that that's pretty much the only robert chambers you can find without a good deal of effort. uh chaosium collected some of the other supernatural stories in a in an omnibus which makes for interesting reading. I I can't really recommend reading the rest of it, but it's it's certainly it it's worth doing to look at at the rest of chambers as over it's not necessarily it, you know it's not a run don't walk type situation.
0: Right. There's, it's a lot of digging to do for someone who you are interested in for f- four of their stories. Um, and the other animating thing that he brings to the Weird Tales canon uh, that has resulted in his sort of being retroactively folded to end is the idea of the book that makes you crazy. And uh, that's the unifying element between the four supernatural stories, is that there was this play... Uh, that was written by someone anonymous who did something horrible and maybe was killed shortly thereafter, but has nonetheless gotten out into the public as a sort of underground piece of literature, and depending on how you want to interpret the stories, so has certainly driven people insane and may have shattered the, the bonds of reality.
1: Yeah, because what he, what he does in the very first story, The Repair of Reputations, is he manages to, I don't want to, he doesn't invent the unreliable narrator, but not a lot of people used it before 1897, certainly. And he takes that fundamental concept and rotates it out into sort of an unreliable universe by setting it in a, uh, I don't want to say farcical, but certainly a bizarre uh, future history. Even at the time he was writing, I think people uh, opened that up and thought, well, this is kind of a bizarre... Thing And if it happens by 1920, I will owe Robert W. Chambers a Coke.
0: And, of course, it's a story that sort of changes its valence reading it now, because in 1895 it was a science fiction story. Uh, Today, when you read it, it's about an alternate 1920, a 1920 that didn't happen. And so you can, uh, if you wish to, treat that as an alternate reality that was created by the madness of, of the yellow sign, the King and Yellow Book. And that's the approach that I took when t- turning it and adapting it into a Trail of Cthulhu scenario for Pellgrain Press, uh, which you can uh, find as a PDF from the Pelgrim Press store. And the idea there was that, in fact, yes, it was the, that it takes what the crazy unreliable narrator, uh, tells you as fact and for the purposes of the scenario treats it also as fact as if this is a real, uh, world that has come into being because of the influence of the book and part of your challenge as players is to overturn that or to counteract it.
1: Yeah, and then your stories uh, don't necessarily exist in that reality, although a couple of the ones in your anthology do. But a lot of them are sort of um, uh, one uh, stripe or another of mainstream or mainstream-tending genre fiction uh, that sort of orbit the, uh, the collection by Chambers in their own Uh, idiom and in uh, not i want i don't say your voice but in a whole bunch of your voices really
0: yeah one of my uh challenges that i set out when writing this book was to do something that stylistically had a different a lot of different colors to it so that there are uh, different tenses there are different time frames there are uh, from uh, different points of view from the uh, uh there are some written from the point of view of unreliable narrators or others that are told from an objective point of view And, uh, together I really wanted to find as many different stylistic containers to play with this idea as possible, because for me, I think that in horror fiction, the idea of the concept or the artistic expression that leads to madness is one that I think is very fruitful and allows you to go off in a lot of different directions. And that in a way it is, uh, just as his chamber's use of the unreliable narrator in, uh, 1895 was, if not unprecedented, very forward-looking, it enables you to sort of push the style of the horror story in, in all sorts of different directions and that it is a form of horror, the horror of, of madness and and reality and not knowing where your feet are that I uh, find personally uh, that's what scares me. I don't I'm not scared of say, you know, a lot of Stephen King style cautionary tales, which, you know, in which people who are either foolhardy and disobey the rules that are given to them or just bad people are then punished. That doesn't seem scary to me because I don't identify with those characters. But I do identify with just ordinary people who are confronted with madness for no good reason. And that's basically the the concept uh, behind the King and Yellow is that anybody who just picks up this book, whether they've been warned not to or not, uh, or even you can be affected by it, even if you don't pick up the book. Uh, And that's sort of an idea of the contagion of madness. You also get that in Maupassant's uh, The Horla, for example, where you've just got this sort of uh, epidemic of craziness or danger that has suddenly hit the world. And I think that that is a very modern idea, it's a very contemporary idea, and one that you can explore in a lot of different ways.
1: Yeah, I think um, in the in the foreword I mentioned that I suspect Chambers draws more from de Maupassant than a lot of, well, I mean, there isn't a lot of Chambers' criticism, but that the majority of Chambers' criticism seems to think, and I haven't read enough de Maupassant and my French isn't good enough, probably to read enough de Maupassant to know um, uh, one way or the other, but I notice the same sort of strong parallel that you're talking about, certainly. Um, when I uh, wrote the foreword to your book, I, um, I I tried to sort of look at, at the whole King in Yellow. I got to reread the whole anthology, for example. They were not just yours, but uh, Chambers' one. And I did notice a, a good number of thematic ties to the non-supernatural, straight fiction second half of the anthology. Was that uh, deliberate, or was that simply a happy accident that I noticed because I noticed things? Uh, that was
0: absolutely intentional, that the connections between the horror fiction and the, uh, you know, what you might call straight fiction, or I don't I don't imagine the term literary fiction was around to describe it then, because I don't think the uh, genres were that codified at that point, perhaps, but that definitely they echo back and forth toward one another, and so the thing that I found very attractive about them is that the ordinary lives of the people are um, unusually well drawn for uh, a whole for horror story, maybe just period, and, and certainly in that period. Uh, and so I wanted to have a sense of sort of psychological realism against which the horror breaks, because, of course, that's what is scary about the whole concept, is the concept of the psyche, and so the, the challenge is to draw people who seem psychologically real. And it's, it's more frightening, I think, also to have a story that uses the accoutrements of the modern world and butt them up against this horror idea. So one of the uh, stories is, for example, about uh, an app that you can get on your uh, smartphone called Distressing Notifications which will just randomly tell you a whole bunch of horrible things and how uh, this woman... We
1: call that the AP feed. Yes,
0: Uh, but they're specifically tailored to you and as you, you know, it sort of seems like an alternate reality game, but what is it going on? And so that's a way to sort of bring the idea of the, the horrifying book into something that's very contemporary. But then, you know, there are also period pieces. There's a, a piece that uh, draws on uh, Chambers' story of, of war and sort of brings it into an alternate history in which there's a, a strange war going on in 1947 in Europe but does not resemble the events or politics of our World War II at all and that's a story about the horror of being a, a participant in war from the uh, person who is inflicting casualties on civilians for no apparent reason and there's um but there are a variety of tones so for example the the story that is uh closest to being a direct sequel to the repair of reputations is set in the current day it's called a boat full of popes and it uh stars basically what you could see as an iconic hero uh a, a guy who's uh fought in the revolution that finally has overthrown the uh hasterite government that was uh set up uh, at the uh in an alternate version of the ending of Repair of Reputations uh his job his day job is to repair the suicide chambers that are referred to in Repair of Reputations and so you get a you know a nice description of that and if you thought it was a nice antiseptic uh, gas chamber arrangement, it turns out well. Maybe, maybe not so much. Uh, but, but you know that is a character who I think is a, a fun character and who could recur in uh, future uh, stories. And is not. And so that's not a conventional horror story. It's a you know horror adventure uh, a story that's more on the on the pulpy end of things. And again, that allowed me to provide a variety of different colors because one of the things that you want to do with a single author anthology, especially one, uh, not only in a single genre, but on one theme is to make sure that there's enough variation that you enjoy the connections between the stories and the uh, threads that they sort of establish as a whole, but there, there's enough variety and color there that you can enjoy reading the whole thing that it isn't too samey.
1: Yeah. I think, um, mission accomplished in that case, uh, the, there is a lot of color there. It's not all yellow. Um, Although, uh, the Chambersian grace notes, this is how obscure he is. There isn't even an adjectival form of his name. The Chambersian grace notes, uh, again, not just, uh, they're, they're well applied, but they apply differently in each story. And it's a, it's just a terrific anthology. And I was, um, I was, I, I expected something pretty great when I volunteered to do the forward. And then when I actually read the anthology, I was, uh, I was very happy that there was so much, uh, to talk about and so many different directions to, to take it. So. I say, um, good job, Robin.
0: Well, I, I thank you. I guess on that note, we'll uh, move on to our next segment. Okay, so I thought we would now uh, start our uh, first installment of uh, yet another of our multifarious segments called The Business of Gaming, in which we'll look at uh, the adventure gaming hobby from a sort of business point of view, because uh, we as gamers are very interested in what allows games to exist and why uh, our favorite companies are making certain decisions and uh, how they're able to do things and what limitations they face. And of course, people are always very concerned about the overall health of the hobby gaming industry, which, as I've said many times, has been uh dying throughout its 45 years of uh, steady and sometimes explosive growth. And one thing that is certainly explosively growing right at the moment is Kickstarter. And this is going to be uh, sort of topic one uh, as people chat with one another at the Gen Con in a, a week or so. And uh, I think it would be interesting at this point to take a snapshot of where we are, and maybe in a year we can go and uh, listen to this segment and see if Everything was as rosy as we hoped it would be, or if it's as doom-laden as we uh, are afraid that it might be.
1: Well, okay. Um, I have not, uh, launched a Kickstarter. I have, uh, contributed. I backed one Kickstarter, which, which made it. So good for me. And you have been a crucial, uh, linchpin of the Stoneskin Press Kickstarter launched by our corporate, um, uh, master, uh, Simon Rogers, uh, as which we have discussed, I think, in a, in a t- in a teaser segment somewhere on the on the mythical pelgren website uh how did the how did the stoneskin press kickstarter experience go let's work out from there
0: um now being a cautious canadian i'm always worried about how things are going to go and certainly the prospect of launching a fiction line through pelgren was not necessarily something that you could assume was going to be a home run right off the bat and uh so when i you know first saw that the initial projected uh, target was $5,000 and we would need to make $5,000 in order to fund the project and have any of those pre-orders come good uh, made me a little nervous. And uh, my nervousness turned out to be completely ill-founded because in three days we passed the $5,000 mark and by the end we were up to 12,500 or so, which basically took us to 250% of our initial target. And so in a lot of ways, what the Stone Skin Kickstarter did, uh, which for those of you who have not rushed out and listened to that test segment that Ken alluded to, is a series of initially four fiction anthologies and what will be an ongoing line of fiction anthologies. Uh, the first one is called The New Hero, and those are stories of iconic heroes, uh, mostly new characters, a few uh, recurring characters, and... Uh, there's, uh, in the middle between the two, two hero volumes, there's a book called Shotguns v. Cthulhu, which is action-packed stories, uh, in H.P. Lovecraft's horror mythos, uh, featuring a, a delightful story by Ken. Uh, The New Hero One also features a delightful story by Ken and, uh, features a, uh, skip tracer who travels between alternate histories to track down, uh, fugitives. Uh, the third book, uh, is another new hero book and then, uh, f- hopefully for uh, Christmas, we will have uh, The Lion in the Aardvark, Aesop's New Fables, uh, which are a uh, collection of stories in the classic fable format, or various ferragos and variations thereof, and uh, that features not only uh, people from the science fiction and fantasy uh, writing community and the game community, but it continues Stoneskin's mandate of crossing genres, and so uh, has uh, representatives of uh, film, YA, journalism, uh, crime fiction, and it really represents sort of the uh, growing expression of the mandate of the whole line, which is to create engaging fiction that uh, crosses the boundaries between not only genres, but different writing scenes. And so uh, it's a very ambitious creative prospect, and we wanted to see if we had drummed up enough interest over the approximately two years that we've been talking about this being in the works. And it turned out that we had. And I think that our experience was pretty typical in terms of there was an initial uh, big flurry. Uh, Then uh, for most of the month period, uh, there was a slow ticking up. And then at the last couple of days, there was another uptick. So we were, uh, although kind of figuring out As we went along, which is a good way to do things, is to be really prepared with the content and then jump in and try and make the business end of it work out. Uh, We found ourselves, for example, uh, having to uh, grope for uh, stretch goals, and we came up with some really cool ideas that maybe we wouldn't have come up with at the beginning of the process because we were under pressure to make that happen. Um, and we've also learned a lot of lessons that we want to apply to the next Kickstarter campaign, which will be for Hillfolk, my drama system game, of uh, where you weave a narrative of uh, dramatic interaction and playing Iron Age Raiders. That'll be in mid-September, and what we're doing is taking the lessons from this Kickstarter and applying them to that. So, for example, just out of spontaneous kookiness and a desire for cupcakes, uh, Simon and Beth set up this system where you could pledge $3 to get a cupcake for Beth. And they created a, uh, a graph where you could see uh, the number of cupcakes appearing on the graph as you uh, as more people pledge cupcakes. And basically, uh, what that was is, uh, I think that was brilliant in a couple of ways. Uh, a, it's a business model in which you uh, charge a 60% markup on a cupcake and then eat it.
1: Yeah, that's that, that's um, that, that's actually fairly audacious in and of itself.
0: Exactly, uh, but B, what it really did is, you know, it wasn't really about getting cupcakes. It was about creating a sense of fun and a sense of spontaneity and uh, of personal uh, interaction with the people who are creating the content. So, uh, one of the things about Kickstarter that's really exciting is it sort of gets around the whole fears of internet piracy by plugging people back into the thought of in order for creative work to exist for you to enjoy, somebody has to pay for it. And what Kickstarter in general does, at least in the sort of creative sector is give you, gives you the idea that there is a one-to-one connection between your decision to purchase a work of, of art of whatever stripe and the fact that that work of art comes to exist. And, Part of that is about uh, being more accessible to people, just as part of the social media revolution is about being more accessible to people. And it kind of reverses the whole, uh, you know, literary feel of uh, trying to create a press that has uh, sort of a lofty, impersonal, olympian uh, detachment from the world or even uh, of having writers whose persona is is detached from the world and you see that in other ways too in fact uh, margaret atwood who uh, would pretty much be anybody's definition of the you know doyen of literary writers uh, is currently or may have just wrapped a kickstarter herself and what she's doing is she's creating a platform specifically for creative people of all stripes to interact with their audiences and create that sense of community that we in gaming already have, but in more arts-oriented sectors, whether it be literary fiction or visual art, that you don't necessarily have that um, chummy personal relationship yet because they're whole vibe until the, the internet revolution was based on a sort of sense of lofty detachment.
1: Well, I, I looked forward to uh, the uber nerds complaining that uh, Margaret Atwood got The Handmaid's Tale wrong. <laughs>
0: um, and uh, in, in fact, uh, she's offered for uh, one of the the, the $10,000 reward level. You can name a character in Margaret Atwood's next novel. So, uh, And she's really jumped into the social media uh, with both feet. She was even at Comic Con, getting her picture taken with Klingons. So, want to see an example of the convergence between geek culture and high culture? It's Margaret Atwood, and she's uh, engaged in you know creating apps and working through uh, Kickstarter and in or I think she might have been
1: Indiegogo, but it was a
0: crowdfunding project nonetheless. Well, one assumes and, it
1: would be Indiegogo, right? Because of the American thing, right?
0: Uh, you assume that, but then, uh, Simon, uh, did a Kickstarter by having an American partner to handle the money. so right. Presumably she could have done that too. Um, so at any rate, uh, I think that in, in Kickstarter, you are seeing something that's bigger than just a really cool, emotionally engaging way for hobby game companies to, uh, set up pre-order systems for their nearly completed games, which is the way I think that we mostly kind of want to do it in the way that works in our sector, but uh, a positive way for uh, other sectors of the arts to come by uh, sometimes being dragged and sometimes enthusiastically to what evolved naturally and organically for to the super uh, plugged-in, internet-savvy adventure gaming crowd.
1: And I think to uh, bring it uh, slightly back to the business of gaming, um, we should note that the model seems to be, uh, sort of applicable across market segments. We, I, I don't think we've seen a, a, a major industry leader. I mean, we haven't seen Watsi or, or Paizo do a Kickstarter yet, but I think, uh, White Wolf did a Kickstarter for, uh, the, uh, vampire, um, uh, uh, one, one of the new vampire books. Um, Although,
0: uh, Paizo is, uh, going to kickstart their uh, computer game version of Pathfinder. Yeah,
1: I think they were kickstarting the demo reel for the computer game version of Pathfinder. Right, it's not quite the same. And that's thing,
0: but... several levels of iterations of <laughs> since <laughs> from a finished product. Yep. But there yeah, you that's go.
1: that's sort of the opposite of um, uh, of something like uh, uh, Will Hindmarch March having always, never, now, pretty much all done, and just kickstarting it so that he could uh, legitimately pay himself to do that last ten percent of the project, which. As writers, we both know takes 30% of the time and effort.
0: Yes, exactly. So I I think that essentially where we're at is a, there is kind of a formula emerging. It's still new enough that you can kind of jump in and figure out what that formula is along the way. We will have a smoother version of that formula for the Hillfolk Kickstarter, and hopefully one that uh, doesn't upend the spontaneity and the uh in a sense, I sort of feel that people like it when you're kind of surprised by the amount of money they pledge, and then you have to struggle to find new stretch goals. Nonetheless, we're going to plan our stretch goals a little in, in advance, and we will have to come up with some uh, fun, uh, emotionally compelling equivalent of the Cupcake-O-Meter.
1: And now, of course, you can, you can wind up uh, biting yourself in the foot there, um, where Evil Hat, for example, when they did the um, Kickstarter for the Dinocalypse Now novel, uh, wound up as a stretch goal uh, at some point offering four or five. novel I forget what it wound up being, but it was some ridiculous number of novels for the price of one, which when it's talking about electronic publishing, I suppose is okay in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, inventory or printing or whatever else, but it's not the ideal way to run a railroad. And you similarly can find situations where you promise an ambitious stretch goal or you promise an ambitious, um, uh, uh, funding level, and it turns out that between the vagaries of shipping or because one or another thing takes longer or costs more than you thought, you end up losing money even on a, on a successful Kickstarter. And right. that's, of course, the hidden uh, 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 nightmare side of, of Kickstarter, both for the small creative and for the audience who may find themselves, uh, through no fault of their own, bereft of anything, much less a stretch goal, if the guy running the Kickstarter is not quite able to do all of the math at the beginning. And again, it's not, um, it's it's not proven math yet. We don't know what the math is. So there's an awful lot of ways things can go sideways on you.
0: There should be a ratio for what a new stretch goal costs you versus what the amount of that stretch goal is. But it's very difficult at this point to know what that number would be. Um, and if you're really incautious, you may bring about the Kickstarter, uh, collapse that everyone fears when too many major projects uh, fail to deliver anything and keep people's money. And I think we're insulated that uh, from that to the degree that people uh, like Will, as you mentioned, have already put in essentially all of the effort and you're just getting over the starting line or the finish line so that you're not, uh, the chances of your failing to deliver are low unless, as you suggest, you've completely mispriced all of your extra goodies and there presumably must be a math for figuring all of that out but everything is so new that we haven't arrived at what that math is so one of the things that we're going to have to do is talk to one another in the adventure gaming sector and get more of a handle on you know how you should be pricing stretch goals uh and it, so that creates a whole other level of is your stretch goal, of marketing expense, is an expense that drives up the budget of your project and causes you to revise it. And because the nature of the exercise is that you're all kind of doing things on the fly, I think it's going to be a while before we figure out exactly what we're doing, which makes it uh, both an exciting time and a scary time.
1: Yeah, and uh, we can certainly say that for now, as with uh, the print, uh, PDF revolution and uh, even before that with the hand-selling, uh, direct relationship to customers level that uh, got pioneered, uh, I, I suppose, by small science fiction presses back in the day. And certainly the, the the chummy tone goes back at the very least to Stan Lee at Marvel Comics deliberately trying to create a sense of involvement amongst the fans to counteract uh, the fact that DC had all the good superheroes. Um, I think that, uh, you, once again, we are out there uh, ahead of the pack, which can be both uh, great because we get to, uh, uh, figure out everything, uh, before people ruin it. And it's dangerous because we might ruin it. So, yeah, there we go. Kickstarter, threat or menace, really. Exactly.
0: It's time for another installment of Ask Ken and Robin, the uh, exciting segment in which you ask Ken and Robin questions, and we tell you the answers. We're going to start off with a lightning round and then move on to our meaty question at the end. Our first question comes from Ville Hallinen, who asks, Why are you two so annoyingly talented and smart?
1: Well, obviously the answer there is that Villy is easily annoyed by talented smart people. I mean, I can't really speak. He's he's a Finn, so you would think that he would be as equanimous and delightful as all the other Finns, but maybe he just has like it's like a uh, system-specific allergy or something. I can only hope that Villy gets some sort of topical ointment for that and uh, ceases to be annoyed by how talented and smart we are. Robin?
0: Uh, It's a variation of the standard question that we often get at panels, which is, how can you stand being such geniuses? And I can just say that we we bear it with uh, relative equanimity.
1: Yeah, I think with a certain charming modesty and grace.
0: Uh, Ken, the next question is?
1: The next question comes from uh, my old uh, college buddy, Sean McMahon, who asks, do helicopters eat their young? And uh, the answer, if you are, if Sean has become an EMT or uh, anyone in, in a position to possibly commit you to a hospital stay, is, what are you talking about? Of course they don't. But you and I know full well that if helicopters didn't eat their young, uh, the parks of this great land would be overrun with uh, tiny remote-controlled helicopters. And uh, the, nat- the natural balance would be thrown completely out of whack.
0: Steve B. asks, do you see a potential comeback for the popularity of action movie role-playing? I think this is a covert way, a very polite way of saying, hey Robin, what the heck is up with Feng Shui? Why isn't there another edition after so many years? And the answer is, uh, this uh, may be in the works. If we can get the schedules of three extraordinarily busy people, one of them being me, to coincide. And that's as much of a hint as I can extend. Um
1: whereas oddly enough I thought Steve was asking about Knights Black Agents, the terrific new vampire spy thriller game uh coming out from Pelgrain Press at this very Gen Con in which uh you are Jason Bourne or someone even better whaling on vampires who deserve a good killing. So there you go, a lesson in perspective. Indeed, yes. And uh, the
0: next question also comes from, uh, maybe you want to pose this one, Ken?
1: Yeah, this one also comes from our friend, Ville uh, Hallinan. Seriously, this time, is there something you strongly disagree on?
0: Well, uh, I'm a Canadian, and Ken is a Republican. So uh, we do disagree on uh, politics on pretty much every way, shape, and form, although with extreme cordiality, and we enjoy talking about politics with one another. Because we
1: are both grown-ups. Yes,
0: Uh, And we're trying to figure out a a way to possibly sometimes do uh, little political segments, have a politics segment, uh, a hot segment on the show, but uh, we need to approach the tone of that very carefully because although uh, we can happily have a conversation about politics in which we disagree on just about everything but still enjoy analyzing what's going on, uh, we don't want to anger up people's blood too much, and of course it is... uh, uh, politics season—the Super Bowl of politics, if you will—as a American politics. This is my most exciting, fun time. Never mind the Olympics. I'm going to follow the uh, each jot and tittle of the presidential election. So maybe we'll find a way to, or, or uh, we'll essay a single politics hut segment a little later on and see if we were are covered in opprobrium and the ordure. Uh,
1: there is also the uh, possibility that at some future cinema hut segment. Uh, Robin and I may uh, butt heads, um, uh, aesthetically speaking. I strongly suspect that Robin uh, misapprehends the Western, for example. So that could happen.
0: I, I think that's uh, unlikely, but we'll, we'll find out. Uh, now we get on to the uh, main question. This is from Mick Wolf. And the question is, what's the first thing you do when you get an idea for an RPG, an adventure, or gaming supplement?
1: Uh, the first thing that I do when I get an idea is I... Uh, Forget it, because I get a lot of ideas, and uh, if I stopped and wrote them all down and did things with them, I'd never get the ones that I'm actually being paid to do finished. If it's the kind of idea that sticks around and keeps annoying me and keeps threatening to uh, sound uh, really, really fun to do, or if, conversely, it's an idea that happens to match really well what a publisher uh, tells me they want, then uh, at that point it sort of graduates to the next stage, which is the... Um, putting together just sort of a, it's not even an a outline. It's more of a document full of things that might be fun to put in, or possibly it's, it's not even, it's not even that much. It's just a, a question of sort of, um, looking at the, the, the thing that the idea would cover and reading more about that idea and sort of looking for a way in that will be original, uh, and that will also, uh, provide the the best gaming experience, because obviously there's tons of terrific ideas that when you look at them, it turns out they were ideas for a comic book or a novel or a big budget uh, Bollywood picture or something, and you, you can't actually do
0: it. Yeah, as you suggest, for me also, as a, uh, a working writer who uh, designs games uh, for a living, uh, the first thing, the first question is, is this an idea that I'm being asked to have, or is it an idea that is just coming to me uh, spontaneously? And so, for example, the idea of uh, the drama system behind Hill Folk has been an idea that has been uh, kicking around in my head as a problem to, to be addressed, which is the problem of how to do dramatic scenes in a role-playing context and have it work and be fun for a long time. And that's something that began with the exploration of Hamlet on my blog that turned into the book Hamlet's Hit Points and then it has turned out to have this game expression in drama system. And that's a long, accelerated process of uh, sort of circling the question and then sort of finding a way to define the question and then finally uh, figuring out how to turn that definition into action, into an actual core system for a uh, game experience that is exciting and fun. On the other hand, If I am given a question by someone who wants to publish something and is basically commissioning me to implement it, often I find the process of seeing how that would work comes very quickly as a series of intuitive leaps. Uh, And that starts with, you know, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? What do they want that game to be? And often the, the challenge there is not in having or developing the idea, but as you then go on to design the game, making sure that everything you do feeds into that single idea. So the key always is not so much having the idea as in preserving it and sticking to it and being aware of it at all times. And as Ken suggests, one of the ways to do that is to write an initial, uh, an initial document that lays out what your goals are and what, uh, what problems you're trying to solve or what experience you're trying to create.
1: Yeah, the um, uh, the the initial idea is uh, in in a lot of ways it's we, we, writers are, uh, tend to annoy people by saying that ideas are a dime a dozen and we all have more ideas than we uh, can ever use. But um, it turns out that it's the it's the case um, that I, that's a subset of writers
0: annoying people by saying things that are true. Which yeah, right. Is <laughs> the job of the writer in general.
1: <laughs> yes, and in, in this case, it doesn't necessarily have to um, uh, come in a deeply felt. Uh, a novel of growing up in the Canadian wilderness. So it can just come right out and annoy you. Uh, See Villa Helenin previously. Uh,
0: My favorite expression of that idea actually came from Mel Brooks, who said that the difficulty is not having ideas, but deciding which ones to develop. And he described the process of, you know, he's constantly getting ideas and writing them down on yellow legal paper, but it's taking the idea to the next stage of something that's realized, uh, when you're writing fiction, for example, often you'll have a, an idea that seems interesting. If you just sit down and start writing, you will get possibly two or three days in and you'll hit a wall because all you had was sort of an image or a starter, but you haven't stepped back to have the full idea and to understand coherently what it is that you're trying to do. So that having an idea, uh, if it's going to be a successful idea in a way, is having a goal knowing what it is that you want to accomplish. And so uh, even with the very exploratory process that led to Drama System, I knew all along what the goal was. I didn't necessarily initially know what it was that I was trying to emulate and therefore did not yet have a mechanism for emulating it, but I knew what it was that I wanted to do. And you can see when you go around the floor of a show with a big dealer's hall like Gen Con and see the new games you can check out the ones that have a strong idea behind them because those are the ones where, assuming that the person behind the booth knows something about what it is, the product uh, that you're asking about, they can clearly express what that is and what the point of it is. But surprisingly often, they cannot clearly express what the idea was because they didn't really have a sharp idea. What they had was a a variation on somebody else's idea or concept or game that they wanted to uh put their their toe in the water and play around with and they haven't quite worked it into the the shape that it needed to develop to be a compelling product that I need to get
1: or in some cases they they had the idea but they aren't able or weren't able either at that initial stage where you and I are are sort of guarding the idea and figuring out what what shape it's going to take and where you're going to aim it that they had that idea and then immediately managed to muffle it in their own mind. Uh, it's not that the, the the book was produced without ideas. It's not, um, uh, you know, the, the phone book or um, a Jonathan Franzen novel. It's just um, <laughs> something that uh, they had maybe four or five ideas and couldn't pick, or they had one idea and let it get misshaped because they uh, thought that all of game books had to look like uh, vampire uh, instead of the way that their idea necessarily needed to look or whatever it happens to be. It's it's not that uh, these people are, are uncreative or, or bereft of of, of even a, a strong central idea. They often, they don't remember what it was or they've forgotten what it was or no one had at any point asked them to say in, you know, a, a Twitter post or an elevator pitch, what is your game about? Because all they had to do was uh, tell their, their buddies who they've been running this campaign for, for, you know, a year or whatever it's going to be a book of our campaign, and then everyone got it.
0: Right, and and what that is is a case of having an intuitive idea, feeling that you want to recreate for other people, and not taking that next intermediate step of saying, what is this intuitive feeling when I express it concretely in, as you suggest, a Twitter-sized explanation? So I guess my, my ultimate answer to that question then is the First thing that I do when I get an idea is I figure out what idea I just had and I shape it and commit it to memory and try to remain faithful to that idea through the long process of developing it.
1: And um, just because I'm curious, the uh, drama system uh, setting, the included setting is hill folk, which is Iron Age barbarians in what looks an awful lot like uh, ancient Palestine. Was this an idea that you had had separately and you said, goodness, wouldn't this make a fine introductory Uh, setting for Hillfolk, or was it that the logic of Hillfolk led you uh, ineluctably to the uh, Old Testament?
0: The logic of Hillfolk led me to need a setting that was very contained, where the uh, main characters in the uh, dramatic cast are basically all together, and although they're periodically interacting with other people, they are mostly interacting with each other. Uh, it led me to want something that uh, seemed uh, fresh and hadn't been dealt with too much. It led me to needing something that was geek-friendly but not focused on procedural scenes, so therefore something that was uh, appealed more to the history geek than the comic book geek because I, I needed something without superhero powers or, or magic or uh, all of those other things that are about solving external problems. And as I was casting about for the main setting, I was uh, reading uh, a book about the historical archaeology of the uh, David and Solomon period. And so, uh, as is often the case when you are creating things, you will grab details from a shelf as they come to you essentially through serendipity. That uh, I didn't pick that book up thinking that it would serve as a great uh, setting once abstracted by a couple of degrees for uh, drama system, but as I read it, it immediately said to me, "Hey, this is what you want. It's something that is uh, fresh yet familiar, and fulfills all of these other criteria." So that was sort of a, a lightning flash of, "Hey, this is the thing I need."
1: Yeah, and, and that's the kind of thing that happens. Um, you know, a, a great number of times you'll you'll be uh, you know uh, sort of noodling around on on a topic in your your Wikipedia search or your troll through the bookshelves or. Your uh, trip to the uh, to the bookstore or the comic shop sort of triggers something, and you're like, "Oh, this idea that has has appealed to me or that is interesting to me for some reason is interesting because it will fit into this other idea that I'm trying to aim and that's uh, and that's always delightful
0: and that happens in fiction a lot too. so for example, in the distressing notification story I was talking about earlier, the first scene is set uh, in a restaurant, and the configuration of the restaurant turns out to tell you a lot about the lead character and uh, the, the secondary character that she's sort of fixated on, uh, but that also happens to have been the configuration of the restaurant that my lovely wife Valerie and I had brunch at the previous weekend. And that's something you do all the time, is you take the little details of your uh, ordinary life and then fold them into uh, whatever it is that you're working on, and it turns out that they... Uh, work perfectly. That's how they fit together, and and you can't necessarily always go back at the end and unravel how much was your intention and how much was spontaneous creation. And it's the that level of spontaneity, the unpredictability behind creation, that separates the interesting, soulful thing from the thing that is just pulled together off a series of ingredients from a
1: shelf, or just hacked out to um uh, to, to, to 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 make the rent, right. And
0: that's the you know, and so we have the balance there between spontaneity, the thing that makes you want that idea and love that idea, and calculation, the thing that allows you to shape it.
1: Okay, I think that has um, uh, answered that question more than adequately, as is our wont.
0: So we uh, come now to our second installment of our ongoing series, Consulting a in which Ken dons the mantle of the uh, expert into all things esoteric and lays uh, the 101 on us. And in this case, I thought that I would uh, begin with a abstract question and then sort of go back a bit and, and fill in why I'm asking this abstract question. So the question is, what's the difference between a mystic and an occultist? And I asked this question because recently I was reading uh, an interesting book, which uh, I think, I don't know if you've read this or not, Ken, I think you might consider it a bit of a primer for your needs, called Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation by Mitch Horowitz. And he's a writer who uh, has uh, been a New Age publisher before um, and has a uh, an ideological commitment into the value of Uh, The New Age Movement, and this is his book that basically takes snapshots of occultism and esoteric uh, from the uh, founding of America to the present day and establishes sort of a through line of how, uh, in many different ways, uh, forgotten occult movements shaped the history of America. And one of the examples he gives is that uh, Johnny Appleseed, who's a real person, a guy named John Chapman, who uh, went through uh, the states of the the Midwest uh, planting apple trees and uh, proselytizing, uh, A, for apples, uh, B, for the cider that you would make from apples, and uh, C, uh, for uh, the Swedenborgian mysticism of the new church, uh, and of course, the the new church was invented by a guy named Emanuel Swedenborg, who had a series of uh, visions about uh, Christianity that allowed him to, in his own mind and in the minds of his followers at least, uh, change the uh, metaphysical superstructure of Christianity. So, for example, he uh, concluded after a series of uh, visitations by the divine that the second coming had already happened. Um, and that seemed very exciting to think, oh my, Johnny Appleseed was distributing mystic wisdom along with his apples. That sounds like a really great premise for something until you then delve into a bit of what uh, this form of mysticism was. and you find that, at least to my view, not crazy interesting or not crazy fertile as a source for fantastic fiction or gaming. So is there a difference between occultism and mysticism? And if not... Uh, well, let me just stop the question there. Is there a difference between a mystic and an occultist?
1: I think, uh, traditionally a mystic is someone who actually has or seeks the numinous experience of the divine and seeks it, uh, more so in a way that transcends verbalization, something that requires direct experience. And this can be, uh, as, uh, overly intellectual as the Gnostics or as, um, sort of, uh, 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 Simple and straightforward as, uh, you know, a firewalking experience or going into a sweat lodge or whatever they happen to do in Mitch Horowitz's um, uh, uh, New Age communities nowadays. Uh, The the, the goal of the mystic is to uh, engage in almost always a transverbal, uncommunicable experience of the numinous. And there certainly are mystic communities. There are obviously monasteries in Tibet uh, you know, Z- uh, Zen uh, Buddhist monasteries in Japan where people are engaging in mysticism together and as a as a shared effort, um, the Catholic meditation on the Sacred Heart, things like that, uh, that also serve to create that mystical communion with the divine. And an occultist, b- uh, by contrast, is someone who just studies the occult, and they may also be a mystic. You can certainly uh, be both a mystic and an occultist, but you can also be an occultist without being a mystic or even without being a theist or without even believing in anything uh, other than you know the strong nuclear force and other things that we can see. So the occultist is is sort of a body of intellectual uh, uh or pseudo-intellectual effort and lore whereas mysticism is a um, it's an experiential thing. So the difference there is not even so much that they cover different ground it's that they aim even if they're aiming at the same ground they aim it at it a different way. So an occultist would look at uh, Tibetan Buddhism and say, who are all these gods, and what is their relationship to uh, the, the fundamental Buddhist scriptures, what uh, part of it comes out of pre-Buddhist bonpa religion in Tibet, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they'd look at all the mandalas, and they'd look at all the iconography, and they'd do all the awesome, fun chrome, whereas a mystic looks at Tibetan Buddhism and says, what is the nature of their communion? What is the nature of their uh, experience of the the supersensible world? And how do I get there, perhaps? and so those are the those are the, that's sort of the, the 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 differential approach and certainly uh Swedenborg was a mystic uh as was uh, Johnny Appleseed but occultism can profitably look uh, both at the sort of specific angelology of Swedenborg because one of the great things about Swedenborg uh from a uh constructed uh belief perspective is that he has uh once again his own uh spin on uh, the angels and their relationships to human beings. And so there's an awful lot of, 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 of meat there to use, you know, whether you're a game designer or uh, any other sort of an occultist. Um, and I think that if you look, the more you look into Swedenborg, you certainly do have to get through an awful lot of fairly turgid Enlightenment-era theology, in my experience. But there is plenty of stuff there, especially if you're willing to risk offending the Uh, uh, the remaining Swedenborgians by caricaturing their religion which I suppose, as role-playing gamers, we have already crossed that bridge long ago when we first beat up Odin and took <laughs> his spear.
0: So uh, if uh, there is a fertile ground for gamerly exploitation, uh, what would you make of the fact that uh, Johnny Appleseed is exporting not only apple cider, but mystical enlightenment as he goes across middle America?
1: Well, I would I would say, um, specifically, I would say, gosh, it's a shame that um, uh, the uh, suppressed transmission, in which I answered this very question, is no longer available anywhere but uh the um, you you can go at it a couple of ways and and hilariously, you can do it both as an occultist and as a mystic as an occultist, what you do is you start looking for all of the other things that apples have symbolized. You look at all the other possibilities um uh, for what uh, uh, uh Johnny Appleseed's traditional barefoot uh, stance, the fact that he wears a tin pot as a as a as a hat uh he's he's engaging in a lot of symbolic activity that. If you're an occultist, you look back and you say, okay, this has parallels with, with grail mythology. This has parallels with, um, uh, uh, the sort of the Merlin figure, the wild man of the woods who emerges to give prophecy. Uh, the apple is a, is a druidic uh, symbol as well. It's a, Pythagor- a Pythagorean symbol. When you cut it, it makes a pentagram, uh, the, the seeds. So that's obviously, uh, geometrically significant. Apples are also, uh, symbolically significant in that they do not breed true. You plant a golden delicious, and the last thing that's gonna happen. Uh, to the apples that come off that tree is that they're going to be golden delicious. So apples have a strong uh, chaotic uh, vibe to them as well as being the, of course, symbolic fruit of the fall of mankind. So there's an awful lot of directions you can go at it uh, from an occult perspective. And then as a mystic, you say, all right, if Johnny Appleseed is trying to commune with the numinous, he's, he's accomplished that. What else is he trying to do? Who is he trying to get into this mystic uh, realm, and what does he think of the mystic realm? Is the mystic realm Ohio? Is the mystic realm America? Is the mystic realm, you know, the, literally the New Jerusalem that he's constructing uh, uh, in some sort of uh, sacred geometrical uh, path? And you can you can go all kinds of different directions, because once again, you've got no shortage of occult apple trees. Um, the golden apples of the Hesperides, um, the apples of Eternal Youth of Edun, um obviously the Garden of Eden, uh, the Chinese have a uh, mysterious uh, – uh, I think it's peaches in, the, in their version, but there's a mysterious uh, fruit-bearing land that lies off to the east of China called Pan Lai that you can bring um, uh, uh, the always uh, trendy uh, eastern wisdom to bear on, if you wish. So there's there's all manner of different directions. I mean, what, what a Johnny Appleseed, uh, or in Chicago's case, Daniel Burnham, who was another Swedenborgian and was our great uh, architect who designed our city um, – uh, can can bring is not so much specifics of Johnny Appleseed believed these nine things and now I have to put these nine things into my game, but a a method by which you can then channel the numinous into your game or into your other narrative.
0: And the interesting irony about uh, Johnny Appleseed is that although his unconventional religiosity has been scrubbed from public consciousness, he himself became an American myth. And he would as an example in that sense of a real person, because of course America occurs in historical time, who then becomes mythic. Who uh, went on his hero quest, spreading apples, and became uh, something bigger, and therefore the the source of uh, Disney cartoons and all of that uh, level of the sort of uh, folk characters who uh, became American mythology.
1: Yeah, I've um, over the over the years I've touched on the American mythology. I haven't yet, uh, you know, talk about uh, what happens when you get an idea. I haven't yet figured out a proper medium in which to express the notion of the American mythology. But there is certainly an awful lot of it for, as you say, a country that exists in historic time and was founded by good, um, uh, God-fearing Puritans who wouldn't have held with any of this nonsense.
0: Well, and, and he is actually a great fertility god for right-thinking Puritans because he is about as sexless, a uh,
1: a fertility god if you could possibly imagine. Well the puritans uh liked sex well enough they just uh, wanted you to you know make sure that the congregational church knew all about it. They could not have been fruitful and multiplied and filled the land. Uh, had they not uh, enjoyed sex. The Puritans get a bad rap by people who are really using them as a club to beat on the Victorians with. But that's a different segment, I suspect.
0: Uh, That is a different segment, and since we seem to be diverging into another segment, I guess it's time to wrap another exciting episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Having once again succeeded in our goal of talking about stuff, it's time to thank
1: our sponsors. Dork Tower. And Pelgrane Press. Find our website and see how adorable we look when drawn by John Kvalek at Ken and Robin talk about Stuff.com. Leave comments, words of adoration,
0: and questions for our Ask Ken and Robin segment.
1: Or seek us out on your social media platform of choice. On Twitter, Ken is at Kenneth Height, And Robin is at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff.